millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Gary Bain and uh, I'm joined today by Peter Hart, but also a special guest because today is uh, a continuation of our series on the Eastern Front. And uh, this is the Eastern Front 1916 with Nikolai Eberholst. Morning, Nikolai. Morning, Morning. Nikolai. Let's let's get going. Yes. Eastern Front 1916. Yes. Um, yeah, we left the uh, the Eastern Front in 1915, surprisingly, uh, with uh, the, uh, the the Russians having suffered uh, enormous casualties uh, during the they call it the Tsarnov offensive and the uh, the battles for the Polish salient and the the Great Retreat. Uh, so the, the big question is: Is the Russian army destroyed at this point? Have have they won? No. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot, Gary. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because that that is the big thing. Um, the the Great Retreat, as it's uh, called, one of the many things called the Great Retreat. They're usually uh, great running aways when they're they are great retreats. running aways. But you can also say that despite the enormous casualties, um, it did save the the army from complete annihilation, and it also shortened the line considerably in the east, making it much straighter. Where before it was a big wavy thing it into was Poland, bendy, and, wasn't it? Yeah, very bendy. Um, and uh, you can also say that uh, some of the things that happens is there's a shake-up in leadership in the uh, in the Russian army. There's uh, a lot of the not-so-great generals are being weeded out, unfortunately, also some of the, the, the good ones too. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there is a shake-up of the whole thing. Um, one of the bright spots here is the replacement of uh, the Russian minister of war, uh, Vladimir Sukomlinov with uh, Alexei Polivanov. Yeah, exactly. With, sorry, I spoke crazy. <laughs> yeah, with uh, Alexei Polivanov in uh, in June 1915. Gary, Gary, uh, what, was it, what was it he said? Uh, he, he, the guy was replaced. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, Polivanov does a, a pretty good job trying to rebuild the army, uh, introducing new tactics, tra- training, improving supply, tackling some of these issues that uh, have been plaguing the Russian army since the beginning, shell shortage, etc. Um, there, there are finally some, some there are 
the Russians have suffered from a lot of shortages of rifles. Uh, there's a, a, a rebuilding of this. They, they have um, they have contracts with American factories, Remington, Winchester, French factories begin to build Russian Mosin Nagant rifles. Winchester is selling lever action rifles. There's uh, the old now enemy, now new ally. Japan is shipping large numbers of their rifles to Russia. And Russia has captured enormous amounts of Austro-Hungarian Manalisha rifles, enough to actually equip like two entire corps with them. Well, there's, uh, yeah, there's a bit of hope then uh, for the. There Russia. is a bit of hope. There is a bit of hope, but then there is also the bad sides of it, because you have uh, in the in the, in the late part of 1915, you have the Sartic uh, personal command of the army. Oh, um, but he's he's almighty. Yes, exactly. But unfortunately, he doesn't know much about war. Um, and um, taking command, personal command of the army means that, that now he will take personal blame for any setbacks. It's not just going to be the generals doing badly. It's going to be the Tsar himself. And a lot of this has to do with this strange thing that's going on in the background in Russia, the, the relationship between his wife, the Tsarina, and Rasputin, this mystic monk right, from right, Siberia. Right. It cannot is be. It? it really cannot be overestimated how disastrous this is for the Russians. Uh, it's a leading cause uh, in the Tsar's decision to command the army. Uh, very capable generals who are not really uh, seen as as good by by Rasputin, meaning they don't want him to come and interfere in their work. They are dismissed, including. Polivanov, which uh, did some, some good things. He's uh, he's not good friends with Rasputin, and he's sacked in 1916. Um, there are generals who oppose that Rasputin comes and visits the general staff. They're sacked, um, and be- people begin to resent the, the crown, the Tsarina, and, and the Tsar for this. So this will come later on, but, but, it, but it's beginning here. They so also get in, yeah. on, So that's that's the the, the Russians in a, in a, in an outline, a bit of an outline. Mm. Uh, what about the other side? Those naughty old central powers. Uh, so 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 what's going on there? Yeah. So uh, for for the for the Germans, the uh, f- offensive focus, if if you will, uh, has been firmly planted on the east in 1915. They're trying to make something happen there, so they can go after after the French and the British in the west. Uh, now with with uh, the the enormously successful offensives in in on the eastern front in 1915, not having produced a, a real victory, uh, Falkenhayn concludes that the East gives nothing back. Is is what what he says? It means basically that no matter how hard you punch, no matter how high uh, how fast you 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 advance, you're just in in you're just halfway to nowhere in Russia. You you really can't do anything. It doesn't matter how much land you take, how many soldiers you capture or, or how many units you destroy you you just can't win like that so they're just going to consolidate the new uh one land in the in the east and then focus on the west where he is going to uh, start preparing for the uh, offensive at the dawn which is very early in 1916 isn't it 20, which is very early, early. yeah it's the fe- 21st of, uh, of february uh, Austria-Hungary, on the other hand, have had a, a really bad time with uh, the black and yellow offensive uh, that we talked a little bit about last time. This last offensive at the end of a long line of, of successes that really is a disaster. So um, there is not going to be any more offensive actions for them because they cannot win on their own without German help. Um, Chief of Staff... General Conrad uh, is also un- unhappy that Germany is getting all the rewards for 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 combined victories. Uh, so he starts to look for places that he can win on his own. So he ignores 
uh, Falcon had his wishes for staying on the defensive, and he goes after Montenegro in January, uh, which he really can't lose, but it proves surprisingly costly. Uh, then he turns towards Italy, where by March 1916, his armies have beaten five Italian offensives. Uh, now he wants to launch his own offensive in the Trentino, and he asks for German help, but he gets none. Uh, he then decides to launch it on his own. But all in all, as we can see, Conrad is really not focused on Russia at this point. Uh, the Eastern Front is quite quiet for his point. But we'll get so, back to that. So that's the, the overall situation now. So, But the, the Russians start to plan a, a, another offensive, don't they? Now tell us about this. Is this what you, you call a Battle of Lake Narok? Uh, which yeah. starts uh, the, the, well, it starts in what 18th of March 1916 ish, ish, so. and it's in the Belarus area, isn't it? Like yes, it, it is uh, Belarus and Lithuania today in that area. Um, yeah, so so in late 1915, the Russians commit, uh, along with other allies at the Chantilly conference. Um, to planning a joint offensive in 1916, but also to come to the help of each other should there be an issue. And that's what happens here, because in, uh, as we mentioned, on the 21st of February, Germany launches an offensive against the French at Ladon, And France asks Russia uh, to go on the offensive, hoping that, that this will force the German, Germans to transfer troops from Verdun to the east. Um, so a reinforced Russian second army is, is ordered to attack the German 10th army along this more or less weakly defended front around Lake Narod with the aim of, of capturing Vilna or Vilnius today, which is the capital of, of modern day Lithuania. Um, this is really Russia's best prepared offensive yet. All these things we talked about that they have rebuilt the army. They have 350,000 troops against only around 75,000. So it's a, a it's five to one majority and um, or superiority. And they have an artillery superiority of about three to one. They have all the shells that they could want. So everything is really set up for this is going to be the big Russian victory. Everything is riding on a victory. And there's, but that also means that if it doesn't work, now you have everything you want. <laughs> will it? Will you ever be able to win? So a lot of Russian generals uh, have quite high hopes. Polivanov's have, reforms have provided the generals with the tools, and now it's just the question is just whether those same generals can use them properly. Um, so it's launched on the 18th of May, uh, sorry March, in uh, terrible conditions, um, and it quickly turns out to be a complete di- disaster. Um, we have. Uh, a, uh, a quote from a German regimental history from the 55th Reserve Artillery Regiment that talks a little bit about how bad the conditions are this time. Trenches and dugouts are full of water. The foot soldiers had soaking wet clothes, which become rigid with the frost at night. The wounded are laid on the parapets so that they do not drown. A vast field of death lies in front of our posts. Several thousand dead Russians lie in front of the trenches between Lakes Narok and Viznyal Sea. Brilliant. Richtofen flies again. It was like Richtofen was in the room, wasn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. Your German (laughs) accent is almost as good as my Danish. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, but the the offensive is a complete disaster. The the attacking uh, corps, the, the main attack force, about four corps, they lose around 30,000 men dead within a few hours of it beginning. Uh, because despite the men, bes- despite all the guns, despite everything, they're using really, really old and outdated taxes. There's no coordination between, b- 
between the artillery, the infantry. There's no reconnaissance. They're just shooting from maps. Uh, there's nothing. It's done in the ways of innovative thinking. All attacks is just done as they have been done before, as they've been done in the West so far and failed. This is just the standard thing, and it just shows that it, it really doesn't work. And we have here uh, an, a letter by German soldier home talking about how this how he's witnessing this this thing going on at, uh, and this disaster unfolding pretty much. He says this, The artillery duel lasted all day. In front of our position stretched out a completely level area with a few clumps of trees and bushes. A birch and spruce forest bordered the plain. In this forest lay the Russian trenches. The Russian reserves gathered in it, although they suffered considerably from the accurate fire of our heavy artillery. Towards evening, when it was already getting dark, the infantry rushed forward while a Russian artillery laid barrage behind our first lines to prevent the advance of our infantry reserves. In dense waves, the infantry charged against our trenches, which were protected by strong barricades. But they did not even get to these barricades, for our artillery covered the entire area in front with a terrible fire in which the attack collapsed. The advancing Russians were shot down like hares in a hunt. There was no hand-to-hand combat. The Russians flooded back into their own trenches, leaving behind hundreds, thousands of dead and wounded. But now our artillery laid fire on the, on the forest, which before long was a chaotic jumble of splintered logs. And what was most terrible was that their own artillery, their own machine guns, aimed their fire at the returning assault waves, forcing them to advance again. They rushed forward again in death-defying desperation, were decimated by our fire, he doesn't mean decimated, terribly shot down, sought shelter in hollows and shell holes, and finally surrendered in their hundreds, in their thousands. Closed detachments ran over to us and raised their arms in front of our wire entanglements as a sign that, tired of the useless struggle, they wanted to surrender. The attack was completely defeated. The field in front of our barricades torn apart by the shells, was covered with thousands of dead and wounded. The forest in which the Russian trenches were located no longer existed. The Russian assault columns must have suffered terrible losses, while ours were very light. The artillery fire lasted all night, but caused us little damage. Now, I wanted to make a point of this, and I looked it up in my own book, which, surprisingly, (laughs) seemed to know what was going on in 1916 on the Eastern Front. I certainly didn't in 14 and 15. Um, but one of the things I seem to bang on about there was that the, the, although they've got a lot of guns, the, the, the Russian gunners weren't up to much at this stage. They, they, they couldn't draw up the, the complexities of a program, the creeping barrages or anything like that. A bit early for creeping barrage, I'm aware of that. They couldn't spot the fall of shot. They couldn't adjust their aim correctly. Uh, they were using shooting off the maps no good when the maps aren't properly accurate because they aren't at this stage. Uh, and worst of all, then they're absolutely shit at targeting German batteries, counter-battery fire. And Gary, you know how important that is. Yeah, because for one thing, if you don't take them out, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to fire back, aren't they? I mean, this is in simplest terms, and your, your infantry exposed to that sort of fire is going to result in mass casualties. Yeah. Now, so sum up what happens here then for us, uh, Nick. Yeah, Lowe. I mean... The, the the conditions are not for it either. The weather is terrible, as we've heard. It it's, it quickly becomes this mass of, of ice and snow and mud and uh, and and freezing cold. Um, but the Germans and their ability ability to hold against this 
overwhelming Russian force really boost their their morals and maybe um as we will learn later may, maybe they become a little too overconfident uh what, the with Germans the, with the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians for that matter because they sort of draw the the wrong conclusions from some of this but we can see it in their letters home that they are absolutely baffled by how good they are and how bad the Russians are. We have a letter home by uh, a soldier to Kiefer of the uh, 249th Reserve Infantry Regiment. So far, the Russians have taken a beating everywhere in their attacks. Our regiment is right in the middle of it. Since the swamp is thawing, the Russians cannot and have not reached us. We had nothing but weak artillery fire. No casualties. Our battalion has meanwhile been relieved. We are back in the forest shelters now. With the field glasses, one could observe both the Russian barrage and later the Russian infantry attack and our German artillery fire. The Russian infantry behaved very bravely, but couldn't even get to the German trench. Since then, the Russian artillery fire on the main line has never completely stopped and one can look forward to further attempts. In any case, the success of our troops is very refreshing. Yes, so the, this this really underlines that, that they're drawing some conclusion from this. This is it's going well. We can easily beat the Russians, and what they what they do uh, is basically they they say, okay, if we just remain on the defensive here, the Russians are just going to run against the wall and and destroy themselves, while we can turn our attention to the west uh, against the French and the British or the Italians in the south. The casualties here are enormous for the Russians. They suffer 110,000 casualties. Uh, 12,000 of these are due to hypothermia and about 10,000 are taken prisoner. The German casualties are only around 20,000. The offensive brings no relief to the French at all. The Germans don't need to to send anything eastwards to to meet this. Uh, But what's worse than lack of result and high casualties is the the effect it has on... on, um, Russian morale, because this was what it was all riding on. This was what it was supposed to be. Um, and we have here the uh, General Mikhail Alexeyev. He is the, uh, the, the chief of staff of, uh, of the Tsar. Match was done to prepare. Large forces were gathered. So too were sufficient material resources, despite the fact of our poverty, which we still can't escape. And all was destroyed, not because of the enemy's staunchness or artfulness, but because of our own ignorance, incompetence and tremendous light-mindedness, which was demonstrated in both large and small ways. The troops displayed courage and the commanders paid them back with an incapability to use the quantities of men. The officers don't want to learn either from their own experience or the experience of others, in spite of the abundance and instructiveness. It's hard shameful and somehow hopeless and uh, i'd like to say that i i feel a, i feel about gary in a very similar way he never seems to learn what abundance and instructiveness oh all right <laughs> yes so uh that's the battle of lake narok uh one one that i'd forgotten i knew about if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah um, but it, it, it's an important uh, battle and I, I think you can say that it is one of the more uh, decisive victories of the first world war because it really breaks down the russian morale officers really lose hope that this will ever work because this should have worked be in the minds of an old officer who thinks that if you just have enough men and just have enough shells, then you can power through and 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 win the battle that way. 
clearly you can't. So so a lot of the older guard of the, the Russian army really lose hope that there will ever be a chance of victory here. So that's it. It's all quiet on the Austro-Hungarian, Austro-Russian front, and there's no more fighting in 1916. The Russian army's finished, and that's it. Well, thank you, Nikolai, for uh, coming. Oh, oh, we're missing a little bit. Oh, (laughs) they're not finished. Tell us what happens next, then. Yeah, because... While all this is happening, everything is really quiet on the Austro-Russian front. The German-Russian front, there's the, the, the big offensive, but everything is quiet down south. Um, the, 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 the Austro-Hungarians following the what is called known as the Winter Battles of 1915-1916. These are a couple of Russian offensives uh, over, over New Year's where the Russians uh, really struggle to... to produce anything against strong Russian, uh, strong Austro-Hungarian offensives that were built following the stabilization of the line after this um, uh, black and yellow offensive. And this, this and the failure uh, at Legnarec really convinced Austria-Hungary that what they need to do in the East is just stay put, dig in, strengthen the line, and let the Russians break themselves against the defensives. Meanwhile, they also work on rebuilding their army because they have Take, we already know that they've taken a lot of blows so far. They, they've taken the beginning at, uh, at the Galicia, they've completely destroyed. We had the Carpathians, we had enormous casualties all the way through. This is a, a time period of about six months where nothing really happens on the Eastern Front. Um, they start rebuilding their armies, uh, infantry units get more firepower, more machine guns, more rifle grenades, light trench mortars. Um, trench guns, this and that. that. Artillery is boosted. We know that the Austro-Hungarians were really outgunned in the beginning of the war. Uh, they had all the designs as a result of these decades of budget cuts and, and, and no funding. By 1916, Skoda, which is one of the largest and best manufacturers of artillery in Europe, they're ready with the new designs that are being sent to the front, uh, new modern weapons. Uh, unfortunately, production of the guns takes time. They're not as fast, and shells uh, are slow to be produced. Trenches are being improved. Uh, unfortunately, comfort seems to go ahead of actual you know, quality in, in defense uh, because there is nothing happening on the front. The, the, the soldiers sort of start to make themselves comfortable in these trenches, and the, and the photos from this time is, is absolutely fascinating because you have, you have trenches in Galicia that are paved with tiles and decorated with plants, and they're flower pots, and they have officers' quarters with, with the glass windows and tables with tablecloths and this and that. There's nothing happening. Oh, your house, Gary. It was still <laughs> like that in the <laughs> 1970s when I was in. Yeah. So, but but there really is is nothing, and this is something that the Russians will also comment on later on. When surprise, surprise, they will come and visit those trenches. Uh, that there is really a focus on making themselves more comfortable than than doing anything really productive. Um, yeah. So you have this this almost complete quiet uh, while Conrad is is focusing on Montenegro on on um, um, on Italy uh, still. There's a lot of things like the life on on the front is quite desolate. It's not it's not close to a lot of of um, big population hubs, so you you feel quite isolated. They're often posted in very poverty ridden areas, um, and uh, and the conditions in Russia is just never nice to be a soldier. And we have a um, German soldier here, um, Rudolf Binding, wrote a famous memoir slash diary after the war, uh, on the conditions in Galicia in the summer. This land 
does not only hold rations and lice. Flies and fleas also wage war. Of the flies, one really cannot speak, or they fly into one's mouth. Fortunately, the nights are cold, which makes them settle on the warm brick stove, which fills the middle of the house. But by day, they are masters of the situation. They're always on the same spot, on hand or head or ear or wrist. If one moves, they fly a hand's breadth into the air and then settle again. They plague us non-natives more than the Russian shells. It's no good chasing them. Flypapers are black in five minutes and there is nothing to be done. The fleas are a bit more cheerful. After some experience, I have come to the conclusion that it is, for the present, quite impossible to rid one's shirt of them entirely. By the time one sleeve is clear, some little hopper has found time to make his way to the other one. Every respectable person has at least six in his shirt, and you can count on the same scale for other articles of clothing. You can just do with that number. They're as big as young cockchafers. Yes. Uh, not sure about Nicola. I'm not sure what a cockchafer Translation. You, you were a young cockchafer, Pete, weren't you? Cockchafer oh, is a flying beetle. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you were a young cockchafer, Pete. <laughs> So, um, um, what's going yeah, on? But, but, that, uh, so it's all quiet. Yeah, but I also think, just to make a tiny point on, on this, that the, the impression that the Germans and Austro-Hungarian uh, soldiers get at this point is that this is an area devoid of what they know of culture. And it really shapes the way they see the East as this large, undeveloped uh, land inhabited by people who, in their view, don't really use it right. And this is really where you see the seeds of things to come in the Second World, World War begin to sow, this idea of what the East is. And I think that is a very important thing, that, that the, the, the way that we see it later on, the way they treat the population, the way they treat the land, the Lebensraum, and all these things that come later on, it really forms in the minds of, of soldiers that are posted to these areas in the First World War. But, so it wasn't a little thing? It, it wasn't a little. <laughs> it wasn't a little point. Yeah, uh, but meanwhile, meanwhile, while the Austrians are building trenches with flower pots and uh, paved uh, roads, uh, the Russians are preparing another offensive because they are still another committed. Another offensive because they're still uh, committed to this uh, summer offensive, um, and um, from the Trentelli Conference. From the Trentelli Conference, exactly. Well, and continuing pressure from particularly the French. Yes, for of some relief on the Eastern Front. Yes, uh, this, the same thing because Verdun is, of course, still going on um, and they, they really need to get moving there. Um, so the man who gets the job, I don't want to go into too much. There's a lot of, of stuff surrounding this is uh, Alexei Brusilov, who is, yeah, he is Russia's best general. Um, he has already given the Austro-Hungarian many bloody noses so far. He was originally the commander of 8th Army uh, and now he's uh, the commander of what is known as the Southwestern Front. So remember, we're in Russia, so the Western Front is uh, not what we call the Western Front. Um, but he's counting <laughs> on a victory against uh, the already hard-pressed Austro-Hungarians. Um, he is not deterred by the failure of Narat, and he believes that the Austro-Hungarians are much weaker than Germany, which he is, of course, right in. Um, he has a lot of focus on, on new and innovative tactics. He's an innovative general. Um, and, and you see the things that he come up with being used everywhere else, pretty uh, soon after, but, but a lot of these are very revolutionary at the time, even for, for Western fronts there. 
Um, so there's a, a focus on more complex firing missions with the artillery. There's focus on infantry artillery coordination, shock troops, soldiers armed primarily with hand grenades in the first waves, then followed by waves of, of uh, soldiers with machine guns to consolidate captured trenches. Um, he also keeps a reserves closer to the front to exploit breakthroughs and 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 points where, where there's a counterattack. This is, of course, only possible because of the docile nature of, of the Austro-Hungarians this time. Otherwise, that would be extremely dangerous. But because he, nothing is happening at the time, he can press up many forces in the, in the front line. Uh, he is also going to rely on very uh, deceptive firing missions in the opening uh, called like um, fake attacks in some way like the artillery will open up along the entire front with concentrated stronger barrage of uh, a front of about 20 to 25 kilometers where you want to actually attack and this makes it harder for the Austro-Hungarians to know where the attack will come uh, he's also going to use what is sometimes derogatorily called the Chinese barrages this firing then stopping uh, so that the enemy will come out from hiding and to receive an infantry attack and instead of fi- attacking you you fire again and then stop and repeat and repeat and repeat uh, and the more you do it the more reluctant the enemy is going to be to to come out once the artillery stops firing because there is no uh, infantry coming and then you attack suddenly and you're on top of the enemy quickly He's also going to really prepare it. One of the big things with Lagnarich is that they just rely on maps, not actual reconnaissance. So there's air reconnaissance uh, is used. They're uh, drawing uh, complicated uh, maps of the trenches. All the officers know where the enemy trenches are. They know where to go. Guns are pre-sighted. When you, when you see the day reports of uh, Austro-Hungarian army in the, in the east, uh, you can sort of see that then they're firing there, but no expected attack. What, and then they're firing in another place and not expecting an attack. What they're doing is they're, they're presiding their guns uh, over a very long period of time. Uh, so there's no, they, they don't really suspect anything, um, but but all the guns know where to hit once this, the thing going. Instead of having the soldiers attack over no man's land, sometimes several kilometers on the eastern front, they are also digging trenches closer and closer to the Austro-Hungarian trench within in 100 meters. Uh, this means that, of course, they don't have to cross a long distance before being right on top of the uh, Austro-Hungarians once, once this goes. And the last factor is, of course, that uh, Austria-Hungary is um, busy elsewhere. Um, Conrad has launched this offensive in the Trentino region of Italy uh, against the Italians. His focus is that he has pulled away troops because he couldn't get uh, German support. He's pulled away troops from the east. He's pulled away troops from from uh, the Sonso front, uh, and this has weakened these this already undermanned front lines of Galicia, Volhynia, and Bessarabia in the east. Uh, this means fewer troops, fewer reserves, fewer guns, fewer supplies, and a very long uh, journey of travel once the Russians attack. And this is at the beginning of May, isn't it, um, Nikolai? Yeah, much against German advice, I, I believe. Uh, yes, much against uh, German advice. The, the, uh, the, the, the Trentino offensive begins in May and runs into to June when things are going to start happening. Um, because the Russians begin their, uh, their offensive in early June. This is, uh, if you know your Western Front, this is also at the time when the Germans renew their offensive at Verdun. They're launching great offensive. You have the, the struggles around the Fort Vaux and, and some of the more famous uh, fighting there. Then the Russians go on the offensive. 
it starts with an intensive opening bombardment that, that really drives the austro Hungarians underground and, and level their positions. It's on the morning of the 4th of June. Um, and remember, this is like nothing has happened for months and months and months. So the Russians are going to open up in full force along, along the entire line. They're blowing up bunkers, billets, supply depots, everything. All the way. And um, I just want to read a very short uh, quote from the day reports of uh, the Austro-Hungarian army at, from 4th of June. They're, they're writing. This is, this is what they're writing. Uh, the enemy put their artillery into action this morning across our entire northeastern front. Russian gunfire grew particularly violent on the Dniester, uh, on the lower Stripa, uh, northwest of Tarnopol and in Volhynia. Um, and for those who don't know, the, the, uh, the Austro-Hungarian front. That is pretty much all of the Austro-Hungarian front at this point. Then, then they write, the army of General Oberst Archduke Fre- uh, Joseph Ferdinand, that's uh, the fourth army, um, was under Russian barrage near Oluka in, fr- in a front line 25 kilometers wide. Every signs uh, of an imminent infantry attack are noticeable. So hearing this, 25 kilometer wide run at Ulika. We already know this is the step one of, of uh, Brusilov's firing mission. So we also can conclude from that that things are looking very, very badly for the Archduke's Fourth Army at this time. So the uh, Russian artillery fire proves to be accurate. And the planning is really working out. This pre-siding of guns, Austro-Hungarian counter-battery fire completely fails. They even write that in their day reports that they, their, their artillery completely fails in their mission to respond. Many batteries are either silenced by Russian barrage or they run out of shells very quickly. It's shorter than on the Western Front, this, this, uh, the, this barrage. It's not these long, day-long bombardment, but it's concentrated and it's really, really intense that it's driving the Austro-Hungarians underground. And nothing has really been seen or experienced on the Eastern Front before. So we have here um, an account. Remember, this this Chinese barrage is of continually uh, driving them. Uh, so this is by a Hungarian soldier na- named uh, Rodion Markovic. Uh, he, he wrote a, a memoir after the war, oddly in, in the third person. So that's why it's, it's like that. But he's, he's writing about the, the, the experience of these soldiers sitting on the ground uh, uh, doing these bombardments. So he's the he in this. And mm. he writes this. The nearer he approached the front, the louder and sharper the droning became. He could no longer distinguish its components. Artillery fire, machine gun fire, the sound of exploding mines, rifle fire, drum fire. Indeed, it sounded as if a giant had been beating a colossal kettle drum. The drum beat was infinite and fatal, long and breathtaking, steadily growing and terrifyingly quickening. The men were not in the trenches. Huge cellars were dug deep into, into the earth. The soldiers called them foxholes, and all were in them, a dozen feet deep. Whole companies, whole battalions, perhaps a whole front were hiding in these foxholes. Only a few lookouts were posted in the trenches. They said that they would stay down there while the drum fire kept on and would return to the trenches only when it ceased. The moment the drum fire stopped, they would leave the, ho- their, the holes. The Russians always stopped the drum fire before an attack. A queer and horrifying death house deep down in the earth. There they were, hiding and thrown together in nervous, anxious expectation. There were some who went down on their knees and prayed. There were some who drank. There were some who, almost choked to death by the immense quantities of nicotine they had consumed, continued to smoke their pipes, their cigars or their cigarettes. The men tried to remain motionless and immovable a vain attempt. 
From time to time, names were called out. Then these, with collapsing knees, full of the fear of death, but impotently stubborn and cowardly, cowardly, that's a difficult word, submissive, tumbled out of the foxhole, driven by a blind fate. They tumbled out into the sunshine, into the murderous drumbeat towards the lookout. So he means that, you know, it came your turn to be that bloody lookout. What yeah, a job, that eh? Is what it is. Yeah, this this is the most intense thing that these soldiers have have experienced so far on this front, and it comes out of nowhere. Uh, it is extremely successful breaking the Austro-Hungarian lines, uh, and with really no reinforcements and no reserves because you have posted everything in your front line. You're relying on a strong front line. There is not much to respond, and the front begins to slowly collapse. Um, and here we have. Um, Count Haberstein, he's an adjutant general of Archduke Friedrichs, who is the supreme commander of the, of the Austro-Hungarian army. With a barrage of unforeseen strength, the Russians assailed an area of 500 paces deep and affected not only the actual fighting positions, whose crews were generally buried under the loose sand and topsoil in the shell-proof dugouts, but also the held-back reserves, who in many cases suffered severe losses even before their deployment. Aside from the fact that the strong wire obstacles were destroyed by the enormous impact of this barrage, as a result of the dryness and lack of wind, a huge, thick cloud of dust and smoke, often intermixed with asphyxiating gases, hovered the whole time over the entire fire zone, removed all visibility and frequently impaired breathing. And at this point, if Pete can stop laughing, we'll take a short break. 
I haven't stopped laughing. You haven't stopped laughing, yet, have you? Your asphyxiating was quite dramatic. Yes. Yes, what was it you tripped over? Oh, well, almost everything, Gary. <laughs> right, Nikolai, so early Russian successes, I would imagine. Well, we know. Yeah. So what happens? Yeah. I mean, nothing really happens other than these barrages on the first day. But then on the 5th of June, the Russians attack. Um, the Russian 8th Army completely overwhelms the Austro-Hungarian 4th Army, breaking through the front line in several places. Um, the uh, the Russians find themselves, uh, sorry, the Austro-Hungarians find themselves completely leaderless. Uh, the, the, the soldiers find them left to fend for themselves in the trenches. Uh, reserves proving capable of supporting the destroyed front line. The uh, defenses in the front line, which have so much faith had been put on these defensives, were mostly destroyed by the Russian barrage and it proved com- completely useless in halting the Russian attackers. So the initial battle here raged from the 5th to the 8th of June. Uh, by, th- by the time it ends, the 4th Army is nearly completely destroyed. We're going from about 110,000 uh, strong to, to around 30,000 in, in wow. just those days. Most of them are captured, of course. Uh, there, there is really nothing to do in for these soldiers either to be killed, be captured, or just to flee back in complete uh, desiree with, with officers running back at the head of their troops sometimes. And Brusilov's armies can really push through this. Um, so we, we can see this, that the, the, the leadership really isn't there. We have here from the memoir Siberian prison by uh, an Austro-Hungarian junior officer called Ernst von Ensman, who's talking about what he, he's behind watch it, watching what's happening and trying to get uh, anything from his commanders. The hill to our right became practically invisible. It was shrouded in smoke and dust. The Russian artillery fire, light and heavy guns, were so intense, it looked as if they intended to demolish the entire hill and level it to the ground. This hill was held by our third company. From our position, it looked as if not a single man could remain alive in in this, this hell of shell fire. The hill had been shelled for half an hour now. Exactly at nine o'clock, we saw the Russian infantry leave its trenches, obstar our third third company, and advance. The survivors of the third company, very few of them, did not even wait for the attack, but began to leave their ruined trenches and retreat. The Russian gunners spotted that immediately and laid a fire curtain across their line of retreat. The retreating men had to run down the slope on the side of the hill, away from the attacking Russians, then climb another slope to reach the top of a a hill and sheltering woods. The Russians shifted their curtain fire as the Austrians retreated, so the fleeing men had to pass the the intense line of fire over and over again. From my position, one could see how the fleeing soldiers were put down. The number of survivors diminished as they passed successive curtains of fire. It did not seem possible that even a single man could get through. We watched this classic example of a breakthrough with mingled feelings of wonder, rage, helplessness and fear. Our own artillery seemed to be sleeping. They fired about one shot every 10 minutes. I phoned my generic northern crept in there for a moment. (laughs) I phoned my commander and reported that our third company was in full retreat and that the Russians were approaching their former trenches. I outlined the disaster, giving full details as we had seen them, and then asked for instructions. Aye, just hold your position. A counterattack will start immediately. Now the Russian advance had reached the hilltop where our third company had been, passed through the breach in our lines, and mushroomed out behind them. This again was a classic manoeuvre, and we... (laughs) And we had employed it many a time with telling effect against the Russians. 
the enemy fanning out behind our unbroken parts of the line, forced those in the trenches to flee or be taken prisoner. In this way, the break in the line was quickly enlarged. I asked for orders once more and reported that it was a matter of time, half an hour at best, until the Russians could fan out behind our own lines and force us to retreat. The answer was still the same. Ah, there are no new orders. Hold your line. Sorry, was he superior from Wakefield? Yes. How did you think- know? <laughs> oh, you wasn't trying to do a Hungarian accent, no. wasn't you? <laughs> Um, I think that yeah. might end up being racist because I don't know what they sound like. But uh, yeah, I think this really pretty much tells what, what's going on. There is That's nothing working in. Yeah, it really tells what, what is going on. There's no artillery support. There's no support from behind. There's nothing. And it, it, the result is just confusion and hectic retreats for the Austro-Hungarians. This, now we have uh, some diary entries by an Austro-Hungarian lieutenant called Ganta of the KK Landwehr Infantry Regiment numbers 2, from the 3rd of July. This is already a month in and it's still going on like this. It's just collapse of the, the line. Um, this is uh, written very hectically and I think it really captures how confusing and, and strange it is. It might be a little hard to, to read, Gary, but uh, it is as hard to read in German and it is uh, <laughs> it, it tells something about the state of, 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 of the of, of the battle at this point, I think. And, and I would just like those of, of you interested in the Western Front, just think about these dates and just think about what's happening yeah. on the Western Front at exactly the same time. Hmm. So this is Monday, 3rd of July, 1916. In the morning, a Jewish defector from the Russian Infantry Regiment number 125 tells us that two divisions face us. The Russians are going to attack us. Feverish expansion of our positions. Withdrawal notice. Infantry Regiment number 45 retires. Ensign Hoffman is captured with half a platoon of 5th Company. Everyone is in wild flight through the valley to the heights opposite. Terrible mess there. Russians are storming the empty positions with hurrah. Great confusion. No one knows what's going on. Russians are pressing on. 8th Company is missing. We are forming a skirmish line on three fronts. To the church of Potok Charney. Mobile kitchens are there. Thank God. Occupying the heights west of 745. Contact is made with Honved Infantry Regiment number 300 and Landwehr Infantry Regiment number 4. 4th of July 1916, Tuesday. During the day, very heavy artillery fire on all calibres against our 8th Company. Great concern for food and ammo supply. At night, mobile kitchens pass by the skirmish line into the valley basin. My nerves leave me. I'm often in despair and without confidence. Brilliant example set by Captain Vice. 5th of July, 1916, Wednesday. 3rd Jäger Battalion arrives as reserve. Will be withdrawn again except for one company. Has suffered heavy losses from its own artillery on the march across point 730. Pretty quiet during the day. Nonsensical reports of the Russians retreating Potek Charney burns at night. Bright, wild flames. A roaring storm wind above the tr- trees. The roaring of the cattle. Mm-hmm. And above them, fighting and death. 6th of July, 1916. Thursday. From 4.30am, extremely heavy barrage against Landwehr Infantry Regiment Number 4, Honved Infantry Regiment Number 300, and 8th Company. Lieutenant von Overschelder und Eider wounded. 
Honved Infantry Regiment Number 300 requests reinforcements. Jaeger Company, uh, Lieutenant Rauber, is sent in. Telephone connections broken X number of times. Our own heavies shoot into us. Honved surrenders. Russians break through. Retreat under terrible artillery fire. On the other height, under artillery fire, machine gun fire opens up. Above, not far from Captain Bice, artillery barrage. Blow to the head, wounded, back quickly. Equipment unfortunately thrown away and forgot Captain Bice. Run back, then ride. Everything is flooding back. Artillery, infantry, support posts, wounded. Rode through the Prut via Dibrotov, then on ammunition wagons to Nadvorna, there to the squadron of the 44th Divisional Medical Facility. Supply train wanted. Everything floods back wildly from Delatin. To the evacuation station, back with Lieutenant Overschelder und Ada. Actually, I don't know why, and I blame myself terribly, but my nerves are exhausted. I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, I think that captures the confusion of the fighting and how everything is just breaking down and and everybody's running back. Of course, he he's of course wounded. Uh, I know it's hard to sometimes get what he's getting at because it's, it's written very much in just small words, uh, but it is also written during the fighting. So, um, but then you have another example here. This is again from uh, from Ensman, which we heard about before, talking about uh, not receiving commands because he is in the front line. He stays there and uh, is captured by the Russians. Yeah, this is the chat we had before, yeah. Mm. We we fired fast, but it was useless to try and stop the Russians. They outnumbered us at least 20 to 1. One could not risk hand-to-hand fighting at such odds. One of the advancing Russians ran towards me, holding his bayonet in position to spear me. To my right, another Russian split the skull of a poor Austrian who'd been unwise enough to fire to the last. I saw another brave a very foolish man swing his rifle while holding it by the muzzle, breaking both legs of an advancing Russian. Another Russian literally blew off the top of the Austrian's head by a shot fired at close range. I fired my automatic at the Russian running towards me and missed him at close range. I had a few seconds to think how it would feel when the cold steel pierced my chest. I turned sideways and threw my automatic into a cornfield. This turning movement saved my life, for it exposed the greedy eyes of the Russian to the beautiful shiny leather case holding my photographic equipment. Slowly, I raised my arms in surrender. The Russian dropped his gun and began to tear at the leather case, while I hastened to take off the strap to help him. My attacker stripped me of everything of value. Ah. I heard pitiful cries. To my left, several Russians were clubbing the crew of a machine gun, killing every one of the Austrians. The few men near me had their hands in the air, looking at their Russian captors with pale and haggard faces. The Russian who had plundered me pointed towards the Russian lines with his thumb. It meant that we were to find our own way into captivity. Slaughtering the machine gun crew and killing the men who fired to the last moment was everyday work. We would have done exactly the same thing if the roles the roles had been reversed, and uh, that's a general point. We would we would mm. say the the British were uh, there was a if you fire those to are the, the conditions. End, yeah, you when you when you fire end. beyond the time where your enemy thinks that you should have given up long yeah, ago, your fair game. Um, he does talk a bit about that as well in other quotes. Uh, this unwritten rules um, of of well, war. You, you can't expect to be taken 
prisoner and, and the words used are firing to the last you can't yeah but you're also hearing this and you hear this in other on other fronts the machine gun crews are fair game. yeah absolutely they, they, you they hate like the infantry hate the machine guns and uh, as you hear here they're just clopped to death as soon as they're surrendering there is no no hope there um yeah so everything is collapsing conrad is uh, starts to scream for help from the russians and the Rush, uh, it's not the Germans. Russians. Oh, it's the Germans. <laughs> yes, the Germans. Um, he wants, of course, uh, he has nothing more to use in, in Galicia, and he wants uh, Germans to send troops to the, to the east, uh, abandon Verdun, and help him, and help him, and help him. The, the Germans say, no, go. This is not going to happen. What we're going to do instead is that you're going to come under our command so <laughs> germany insists on a unified command in the east they are going to put hindenburg who's only so far commanded the uh, the northern part of the front he's going to be the the commander of all central powers forces in the east uh austro-hungarian units are going to receive german officers um which means that the, the units will be an Austrian officer holding the command so as not to lose face. This, this uh, goes uh, down face quite low, doesn't it? The German yes, officers it does. are appointed very low yeah. down. In- uh, but they're, they're typically not put in direct command because it still has to look like an Austro-Hungarian army. They're put as chief of staffs and, and, and officers that, that way so that but they're really calling the shots. It's just on paper. You can say that that is a uh, general this from, from the Austro-Hungarian army, but it's really a German behind the scenes. Um this really ends Austro-Hungarian operational independence in the east, uh, and Conrad has to abandon his offensive in Italy and move everything he's got east. Um, for the German sending, they're being sent in from everywhere that they can be spared. It, it does have an effect in the west. Uh, offensives have to be halted uh, at Verdun, and uh, they have enough problems already with the British and the French having la- launched their own offensive at the Somme. Um, and as we know, these are horrible battles, of course, Verdun and the Somme. But we often hear this, that, oh, the Germans kind of liked being sent to the east because it was a little more quiet. Well, at this time, it's definitely not a good thing to be sent to the east to face the Russians uh, in Galicia. Uh, and it doesn't exactly save you. We have here uh, another diary from a German soldier who's sent. And uh, it also tells a bit about what, what, what the conditions are at this time. Uh, this is Otto Braun. 3rd of July, 1916. Yeah, so same date as the other guy was writing, uh, we heard earlier. At 10 o'clock, we got the order to join the Austrians. The Russians were supposed to have broken through, and we w- were to hold the line till 5 o'clock when reinforcements were to come. The Austrian artillery had shot its last shell. There was no question of storming the place. It was already designated a great achievement of the company to have held the miserable second line, simple trenches without dugouts or communication trenches. 4th of July, 1916. We are in a most unfavourable position at the foot of a hill occupied by Russians. At 2pm, firing had been continuous for 60 hours. It was a terrific night with a great storm raging, very lights going up continuously, while searchlights, lights and whistling shells made it almost as light as day. 6th July, 1916. One sometimes comes across people who are quite done for, just now, they're past a gefreiter, who obviously has St. Vitus dance, while the night before last, an Austrian platoon commander came running like mad and shouting, The Russians! The Russians are coming! Then he was gone. You have to be one of those naive and arrogant staff wallers who have never been in the front trenches to condemn these people. 9th of July, 1916. 
We had a number of casualties. First and foremost, boy, that fine lad fell, a bullet from his shoulder to his stomach. I was with him just now. I closed his eyes, took his faithful hand once more, and now all is over. In the night, a terrific storm. Our holes filled over and over again. Occasionally, we got quite desperate. So long as one can keep good humoured. 10th of July, 1916. Some of the men are quite exhausted, on the point of breaking up altogether, and some are already down and out e.g. the crew of one machine gun that got three direct hits one after the other. Nobody was wounded, but the men are finished, staggering about, screaming and so on. In some spots, the emplacement is totally shot away. A concrete platform and one dugout covered with eight layers of wood held, but nothing else. The Russians came in here. There are corpses everywhere, most of which, black as coal, make an awful stench in the hot midday sun. There is one picture I shall never forget. In a wood in which every stump was shot away lay a Russian, a German and another Russian, all of them with expressions of most terrible fury on their faces. The German with his bayonet fiercely clutched in his hand, his left clenched above his head and beneath his heart the deep wound of a three-edged Russian bayonet. 28th of July 1916 it was interesting to hear the latest reinforcements, wounded folk from Verdun, say, far rather back to Verdun than here. There at least we had relief, rest billets, bomb-proof cover for reserves, but here there's nothing. As much firing on the rest billets as in the front line. It's marvellous to see how our men stand it all. That's good. Good quotes there, Gary. Yeah, I think... Um... Well, we can pretty much dispel the myth that it's all quiet on the Eastern Front and nothing is happening. And uh, but by now, uh, three three episodes in, but uh, yeah, there there is some things happening here that 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 you don't see in the West because it's so chaotic because the front is moving so fast. There is not time. This this battle goes from June to September, and there's pretty much no time to rest. The soldiers are in there. They're in there until they either killed, captured, or, or wounded. Uh, they, there is not nothing. There is no circulation of troops. They're not being pulled out of the fighting. They, they have to stay there until the end just to stem the fighting. Uh, so the... the um, the uh, the fighting continues. The Germans do make uh, a difference, but it is still quite difficult to hold the Austro-Hungarian lines together. And we have here uh, a German soldier, Rudolf Binding, again, who talked about the flies, uh, riding in the end of the fighting in, in 1916. There is a fierce battle raging to the east of Halic. The heights on both sides of the Dniester Valley are held by our divisions, which have been put in like stitches to hold the Austrians together. But what is the good of strong stitches when the cloth which they are to hold, is rotten. The ratting and surrendering are indescribable. Then, of course, the parks and ammunition columns streaming to the rear make a very disturbing impression on our steady and reliable German troops as they go forward. By the time they get into action, they've passed by so many hopeless and helpless ones that their, uh, that their most valuable quality, spontaneity, has disappeared. It's a tragedy that, Although all our troops made good the failure of the Austrians when once they got into action, the whole line has still got to be withdrawn. But this is not a simple picture, is it? Because the Russians, it's they've got problems too, haven't they, Nikolai? 
Yes, I mean the the what this really proves is that 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 the the while Brusilov is quite innovative and has done some things, the same cannot really be said about other commanders. They're supposed to be supporting attacks uh, by the Western Front. These fail because the generals just delay, delay, delay until it's almost too late. And then when they finally get into action, they, they're slow to react. They don't use new tactics. It's the same old story as have been seen before. So Russian casualties begin to mount. Reserves brought in are also not trained in these new tactics. So things begin to, to go worse and worse and worse. Supporting attacks fail. Uh, officers carry out these all-star attack over difficult terrain is carried out instead of trying to exploit uh, easier ways to go, breakthroughs in the line. There's a British observer who says something brilliant, like the Russians always seem to be on the lookout for the next box to drive themselves in. Uh, and it's, of course, funny if it wasn't so tragic uh, that, that it, it, they, they really cannot do when they only have one general who who is <laughs> who is seeing the way forward, the rest are just doing the same old same old. Uh, at the same time, more and more reinforcement brought in. The Germans, of course, brought in, uh, as we've heard, Ottoman uh, soldiers are brought in. An entire corps, the fifteenth corps, fought at Gallipoli, is brought in to to hold the line. Has enormous casualties, but also do, do quite well. Um, but most of all, you see that the effects of the unified central powers command in the east is 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 felt at this po- point later on through August with September they're stabilizing the line and then something starts to happening because at this point Romania joins the war now where I, I know where <laughs> everyone's probably interested in the remaining campaign because it's absolutely fascinating, but we haven't got time. So you have one minute forty two yeah. seconds to, uh, to 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 describe this fascinating. Uh, yes, I'll do my very best. Well, the most important thing is that they 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 pretty much join too late. They join because the Brazilov offensive is successful, but they join in late August when it's already beginning to go not so well for the Brazilov offensive. In effect, what they want to do is is uh, is take Transylvania. Uh, so they launch an invasion in in start of September. But uh, what it really does is that it lengthens the front for the Russians because the Romanians are not ready for war. But as they join, the Eastern Front becomes a couple of thousand kilometers longer, and the Russians have to start sending troops in to to help the Romanians because once they are in the war. The Germans and Austrians uh, and Bulgarians and Ottomans start offensives from multiple sides uh, and attack into um, into Romania. And they beat them badly in 1916, uh, pushing them into Moldavia, and they capture Bucharest by the end of the uh, of the year. Effectively, what it does to the Brusilov offensive is that it, it completely halts it uh, because there is an, all reserves for that offensive have to be transported south to help the Romanians. Uh, and that really ends the uh, Brusilov offensive. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that uh, 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 Falkenhayn by this time, time had been removed yes. as, as commander-in-chief, and, and he mm-hmm. actually uh, leads the counterattack into Transylvania, doesn't he? Yes, yes and, he leads uh, the counterattack against Transylvania, and Mackinson, who we've heard a lot about a as well. well-known brewer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he uh, leads a combined central powers force of Austro-Hungarians, Germans, Bulgarians, and Ottomans into the south. And there's really no way for the uh, Romanians to hold at this time. Uh, but that means the end of the Brusilov offensive. Um, by the end of it, uh, you're looking at one of the biggest battles in history, one of the most costly battles. You're looking at well over uh, 2 million casualties with about a million dead. Um, the Austro-Hungarians have suffered 
maybe around 400,000 prisoners of war. Uh, But they're still in it because they have managed to halt the Russians. There are some times where you you hear that the Brusilov Offensive is the greatest victory of the First World War or the the, uh, best uh, carried out offensive of the Allies so far and so on. But really what it is, is it's a a theoric victory um, because uh, it is enormous casualties. There is no victory. They, They cannot break the Austrians. The Austrians are still in it. And they are left with a crippled army and they will not be able to carry out offensives again on this scale. And there is no, no winnable war in the foreseeable future. Um, what, it also, what, what it does for the Austro-Hungarians is, of course, they have been put completely at the mercy of their uh, German allies. Uh, the offensive in Italy have broken down. You see the first real Italian success uh, as troops are moved away. They managed to have a breakthrough on the Sanso front, capture the town of Galicia. Uh, not, not Galicia, I'm already on East, not Galicia. Um, and there is really no hope of this war-ending offensive anytime soon for any of them at this point because they're both broken down. For Russia on the home front, it also have an enormous impact because, of course, blame can be placed on the Tsar now for two failed offenses. The Brazil offense is, of course, hailed as victory, but the casualty lists speak for themselves. And there's more and more growing resentment among the population. At this time, you're also seeing, seeing the first signs of, of revolts and revolutions. And there's you have what's known as the Great Central Asian Revolt of 1916, this enormous event that we don't really hear much about is uh, because of the enormous casualties, they have to start recruit soldiers from areas that were previously exempt from recruitment because of ethnicity uh, and being basically colonies that line up to Russia. Uh, and that sparks enormous revolts and, and, and what some people have called a genocide. Uh, there is a, a mass exodus of, of uh, people in Central Asia what is today um, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, these, these areas, Kazakhstan, um, and you're counting more than 100,000 civilians who die in these enormous uh, exoduses over the mountains to, to, into China to escape. Um, so, so things are starting to happening that will really explode in 1917. But by the end of this, you would just have two broken armies on each side. Uh, but there is... The, the, the last hope, really, for Russia to win the war in the, with an offensive is dead at this point as well. Uh, and Austria-Hungary, while beaten, is still alive. I mean, what a story, Gary, that Nikolai's guided us through. Um, I mean, we, we just need to know more about things like this, don't we? We do. And uh, I'm assuming that uh, that was the lead into 1917, so mm. we'll be doing some more. Oh, we will be back again fairly shortly, I believe. We're scheduled to do it before the end of the year. And thank you again, Nikolai, for, for, for doing it to me. If, if people want You're to buy, welcome. what's your book called, Nikolai? Just remind us that you can Aust- buy Austria-Hungary. No <laughs> imagination. Then. Yes, no imagination. An introduction to Austria-Hungary in the First World War. And that's available through the Great War Group. Group. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, I'm such a professional. Okay, well, that's about it from us. Thank you again, Nicola. Gary, you You're are as ever a ray of sunshine in a in a, a, a rather miserable but very exciting tale we've heard today. I think we should say though, Nicola, that we've had some complaints about the accents that are being used. So do you you should go back to your natural accent for the new. Mm. For the <laughs> next Cheers. 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 Thanks for listening to the show.
If you'd like to support us, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. And we'd be jolly grateful. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it